0: We're gonna continue our series on the book of Psalms. I want to tell you about a book I've been reading this week. It's called God Smuggler. It's a story about Brother Andrew. Some of you may have read this book already. Uh, Brother Andrew was one of the first missionaries into the Iron Curtain right after World War II. So into Eastern Europe uh, and Russia, right after World War II, they called it the Iron Curtain. And these were communist countries, and he was a Dutchman. He was a missionary and he felt called to go into that area of the world to encourage believers there. And uh, under these communist regimes, there was a strategy to eliminate Christianity. Uh, The communists did not want Christians to exist, and so they tried to make it very hard to be a Christian. Christians had less rights than other members of the state, they were constantly watched by underground police. But the primary way that they sought to extinguish Christianity was by banning Bibles, making Bibles incredibly hard to get their hands on. And so people were actually allowed to go to church for the most part. Brother Andrew, when he first got into these countries, was surprised how many churches there still were, as long as they were registered. But he said in these churches, there was very few Bibles. Oftentimes, there would be no Bible because it was so difficult to get their hands on one. And so Brother Andrew started encouraging believers but also started uh, loading up his VW bug every time he crossed the border with Bibles. And so he was... Smuggling Bibles, which was a highly illegal thing to do back then. And he'd go into Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, uh, and then even harder to reach countries, Romania, Bulgaria, and then into Russia itself. Smuggling Bibles and encouraging believers. It's an absolutely amazing book if you have a chance to read it. Um, at every border crossing, some miracle had to happen in order for Brother Andrew to cross the line without getting caught, because if he did, he'd get sent to jail or worse, uh, what he was doing was highly illegal. Let me tell you one story. He was going through Romania um, and he said this was the toughest border crossing that he had experienced, that he had faced. And the cars lined up in front of them. the border guards would take up to half an hour, 45 minutes, a, a vehicle. And they just tear the vehicle apart. they check everything. So Brother Andrew's sitting there going, oh my goodness, like, God, you're going to have to do something miraculous here. His, his, tr- his car is full of Romanian Bibles. Like so many Bibles that he can't even hide them. They're like on the front seat. He's like, God, you've got to get me through this. The car right in front of him, it didn't take 30 minutes. It took 60 minutes. The people, the border crossing undid the doors. They opened up the engine. They started opening up engine parts and looking in there. They were hardcore looking for stuff. And then it's Brother Andrew's turn. And he goes through. The guy looks at his passport, sees the document, stamps it and says, go for it. And story after story, like this, every time Brother Andrew was going through and he was in a dangerous situation, God was looking after him. Uh, What he was doing was a very holy work. Uh, Bibles were so incredibly cherished then. Uh, In most cases when Brother Andrew actually delivered a case of Bibles or even single Bibles, people would break out into tears because they were so joyful. It was like they had won the lottery. It meant so much to them that they could finally have a copy of the written word. Uh, absolutely amazing book, amazing stories. I read another book last week about the current situation of persecuted Christians uh, in our day and age. Many of the pers- much of the persecutions happening in Muslim countries, as you know, and uh, many Muslim people are coming to Christ through dreams and visions. Um, because there are no churches, or very few churches, there's not a lot of missionaries, and so if somebody was drawn to Christ, there wouldn't even really be anywhere to go or anyone to talk to. And so God is drawing uh, Muslim people to himself through dreams and visions. I want to tell you two stories that I read about that I think are worth uh, saying. A man felt drawn to Christ. He had a dream of, of Jesus saying, come to me. And the man he didn't even know who Jesus was. There's no church, there's no missionary, there's no pastor to talk to. He didn't even know, what am I supposed to do? And then the next dream, he had a picture of himself in a bookstore picking out a bright, a bright blue book in the shelf. This was his dream. So the next morning, he got up and he went to the bookstore and he went to grab, he went and saw exactly what he saw in his dream, this book, thinking that it might be the Koran or some other teaching. He pulled it out and it was the Bible, the Christian Bible, and he bought it. And he went back and he read it and he was led to Christ. Uh, He was absolutely convinced of the truth. Another one, another story that I read about, again, very similar. A man had a dream that God was seeking him and that he wanted to know him. And this man didn't know what to do. He's like, I don't even know who you are. I don't know how to learn about you. There's nothing in my country. He was walking down the market one day and somebody bumped into him in secret and handed him the Bible and he said, the Holy Spirit told me to give this to you today. And the man went, he went back, he read the Bible. And after reading the scriptures, he became convinced of the truth and became a Christian. And there are stories after stories after stories of how the Bible is drawing people to God. And how God is, is doing miraculous things to make sure that his word gets into people's hands. This morning, I want to talk about the scriptures. I want to talk about the Bible, God's written word to us. This is one of the primary ways in which God leads us to himself. One of the primary ways in which we grow as Christians in our formation, in our discipleship. And so we're going to continue our journey through Psalms and we're going to tackle Psalm 119. So if you do have your Bibles, uh, feel free to open up there, Psalm 119. Now I've had a number of people come to me this morning saying, are we going to be here till lunch? Because It's Psalm 119. If you know your Bible at all, you know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Psalms and it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, we could read the whole thing this morning, but we would be here until well after lunch. There's 176 verses. It would take up probably two and a half pages in your Bible. So uh, as good as it would be to read the whole thing, we're not going to do that. I'm hoping to encourage and inspire you this morning so that you'll go home and want to do that yourself uh, today, tomorrow, or maybe throughout the week. So let's talk a little bit about what we're reading here. Um, Psalm 119, you'll notice if you have your Bible open that it's divided into 22 different stanzas, 22 different sections. Each section or stanza is represented by, uh, by a Hebrew letter. And lo and behold, there are 22 Hebrew letters. And so... Um, Each letter of the alphabet in Hebrew is represented in the 22 stanzas that we are reading. Each stanza has eight verses and the first letter of each verse starts with the same Hebrew letter that 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 stanza is titled for. Now, it's impossible for us to really know this because this was written in Hebrew, we're reading in English, so so much of this beauty and this poetry is lost in translation. But that's what we're reading here. This is an acrostic. Each Each letter of the alphabet is used And each letter receives exactly eight entries before moving on to the next letter of the alphabet. So this is, what we're reading here is brilliant Hebrew poetry. And unfortunately, so much of it is lost in translation. The most common words uh, that we see in Psalm 119, Psalm 119, by the way, is basically a love poem to God's word. It's, It's 176 verses about how much the psalmist loves God's word. And so... Uh, Words that are used pretty much interchangeably to describe God's word are these, uh, his ways, his statutes, his decrees, his laws, his precepts, commands, words, or promises. And so whenever you come across a word like that, that psalmist is talking about the Bible. He's talking about the scriptures. So we can't read the whole thing, but I want to read certainly some sections of it so we get an idea of what we're reading this morning. So let's start with verse 1. We got it up there. So Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. This phrase, seeking God with all of your heart, this is really what I would think is the best description of what it means to be a genuine follower of God. Somebody that is passionately pursuing God with all of their heart. Throughout the Psalm, as you read it, you're going to see that pursuing God. Uh, with your heart is almost synonymous with pursuing God through the Scriptures. If you're a person, what you'll see in this psalm is if you're a person that is passionate about God, you are also a person that is passionate about His Word. Verse 9, we'll see this here. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your Word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your Word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So you see, you see for the psalmist that the word of God is deeply embedded in his heart. He memorizes it. He reflects on it. It's also a recognition that God's word is a guide to the psalmist living well. It's a guide. It's a counsel. It's a, it, it helps him be pure and live the kind of life that he wants to live. There's a few more up there that kind of speak about this. Verse 32, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And then, of course, we all know this one. Even if you've not read the Psalms, you've heard it before. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's interesting to reflect on verses like this in light of how so many people have been negatively affected by legalism. Legalism is this understanding that you have to earn God's favor by obeying the law perfectly. That somehow God is this, um, this judge and, and as soon as you break his rules or his laws, you're going to be punished. And legalism is all about trying to earn status, earn favor. It's all about following the, the law to a T and so many people have been negatively affected by legalism. I think what you see here in the heart of the psalm is that there's really no hint of legalism at all. He says obedience to God's word is a joy and it sets him free. It's this recognition that following God's word sheds sheds light on how we are to live. And he goes so far to use the word delight. He actually delights in the word of God. And you might think, well, maybe he just got a little bit carried away in this sentence. Like, delight? Who delights in God's laws? Well, the word delight actually shows up eight times in this, in Psalm 119. Let me read a few more to you. Verse 24, your statutes are my delight, they are my counsellors direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Verse 47, for I delight in your commands because I love them. You cannot read through Psalm 119 without seeing the joy that the psalmist has for the scriptures. He absolutely loves it and it brings him joy and delight. Nowhere in Psalm 119 is there this, um, this idea that this is some sort of Christian duty or, or Hardcore spiritual discipline. No, this really is a genuine delight, a joyfulness in the Word of God. For the psalmist, it is a privilege to know what God wants and then to follow Him. He counts it a great privilege. Oh, I know what God wants of me, and He's giving me counsel and He's showing me His path, and I get to follow Him. God's word is a delight. In China, there's an incredible movement of God happening there. I'm sure you know about that. Millions of Christian, millions of people are becoming Christians. And yet, even today, there are, there are many areas, especially in rural China, where Bibles are really hard to come by. And there are areas in China where it's just as persecuted now as it was back in the Iron Curtain. I read a, I read a story of an American missionary who went in to encourage some of these underground believers. It was a three-day conference. And um, the, these were underground church leaders, represented probably about, I think they said about a million people strong. There was about 120 of these church leaders there. At the end of the three-day conference, uh, the missionary saw them outside and they were ripping up their Bibles. And he thought, what's going on here? And the interpreter said to him, here's what's going on. Among these 120 uh, leaders, there's only seven Bibles. They only own seven Bibles among all of these leaders. So what they're doing is they're actually ripping up, uh, they're tearing out the different books of the Bible so that they can hand them out to each of the pastors. So everybody can have at least one or two books of the Bible, and then they're going to go home, memorize it, teach it, and then spread it around so that everybody can have an opportunity to read through the Bible and have access to it. That, to me, sounds like delighting in the Scriptures, desiring it uh, so much. And as I hear stories like this that happened back then and happen still now in persecuted nations, it's incredible and it's humbling. When I read that, I find myself very humbled by that. There's another word that pops up quite often in Psalm 119. It's the word meditate. I'll just read a few of them, but it shows up eight times. 119.48, I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day, all day long. My, or 148, my eyes stay open through the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Meditation has been given a bit of a bad rap in our culture today. Uh, it's kind of associated with New Age movement. It's it's taught as an emptying of your mind. The kind of meditation that's talked about here, that a biblical meditation is the exact opposite. It's not an emptying of your mind. It's actually a filling of your mind. It's a filling of your mind with the scriptures, and you're meditating on the scriptures. And meditation, it's not just casual reading of the Bible. It is studying. It's reflecting. It's memorizing. It's praying through the scriptures. It is imprinting the words of God in your soul. That's what meditation means. It means really soaking into the word of God and letting it pour over you, letting it form you. When we meditate on God's ways, his uh, his ways become more imprinted on our hearts. And that's the kind of meditation that the psalmist is speaking about. I imagine that's exactly the kind of meditation that these Chinese leaders would go back and, uh, and do. They'd get the book of John and they'd meditate on it. They'd memorize it. They'd let it really soak into their life. They'd teach their church and then they'd pass it off to the next church leader and then they'd start with another book. It's the kind of meditation we're talking about. I want to look at one more thing here. God's word offers us comfort and hope. For the psalmist, life is much like ours. It can be difficult, it can be confusing, it can even be very painful at times. And yet, somehow God's word offers us something in the midst of this. Even when life is hard, God's word is there. Here's just a few uh, to show you that we see in Psalm 119. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. I think we actually sang a song that, that spoke exactly like that this morning. 107, I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. 116, sustain me, my God, according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. 143, trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. Now, as I read these, I imagine there are thoughts going through your mind, and they certainly were through mine. How does this happen? How does God's Word actually help us when, times are when life is tough? I want to tell you another story. It's a bit of an extreme story, but I think it will uh, illustrate. Uh, 1950s or 60s in Russia, highly illegal to be, uh, to be leading a church that's not registered. I want to tell you a story of Dmitry. He lived in a small rural village 400 kilometers north of Moscow. He was a three-day walk from the local registered church, and so he couldn't go there every Sunday, as you can imagine. He couldn't stand the thought of his family growing up without uh, learning about God's Word and worshiping together. So he started just a fellowship in his own home with his family, his two boys and his wife. They started reading the Bible. He did have a copy of the Bible. They read the Bible, and as they read the Bible, they decided, hey, we need to be worshiping because that comes up quite often in the Scriptures. When you're a follower of God, you worship. So they started worshiping, and they started praying. Well, it's a small village, and villagers started realizing what's going on, hearing what's going on, and they wanted to become a part of it. So the small gathering uh, eventually turned into a much larger gathering where many, many villagers would come. Well, the authorities took notice. They started threatening him. They started beating him up, saying, Hey, you need to stop this. What you're doing is illegal. After many threats, he just refused to stop because he had to keep doing it. The church, had, or his His home church had hit 175 people before the authorities got in there and said, we've had enough of this. And they arrested him, and he spent 17 years in prison. They sent him to Siberia, and he spent 17 years. And the only thing that he had to do was sign a document that says, I deny Christ. And he refused to do it. And he spent 17 years being tortured and uh, being kept in this damp, cold, freezing prison. His story is, he said... um, Two things kept him very strong during those 17 years. They weren't easy, but two spiritual disciplines really kept him going. The first one was a heart song. He woke up every morning and he sang a song to Jesus. It was the same, same song, a song that uh, just really helped him express himself. And at, and at the beginning, the guards and the prisoners made fun of him and threw things at him, but he just said, I had to do it. And the other thing that sustained him through this time was every time that he could come across a scrap piece of paper, a napkin or something like that, he would write down with charcoal or a little stub of a pencil, he'd write down all the verses that he knew. And he'd write them out so that he could keep them in his mind and he'd post them on his jail cell. And he'd get caught, of course, and the guards would beat him for it, but he said it was so important for me to keep the words of God fresh and to keep meditating on them. At the end of 17 years, they realized they couldn't break this man, so he was off to his execution. On his way out, he was about to be executed. All 1,500 of the prisoners sang that heart song that he sung every day for 17 years. And the guard looked at him and he said to him, Who are you? The man said, I'm a follower of the living God and Jesus Christ is his name. And they let him go. And so he lived to tell this story. But the two things that really kept him going, that kept him strong, was a heart song and was the Scriptures. The Scriptures sustained him when life was so hard. It's an absolutely amazing story. And as you read accounts of persecuted Christians, they will recite many similar stories. How the Word of God, in the the worst distress of their lives, the Word of God sustained them and helped them. I recognize that stories like this are extreme and that they're hard for us in our context to relate to. But I can tell you that some of the strongest Christians that I know that have gone through hard times will say the same thing. They will say that the word of God really helped them. We had a really good friend who just got through breast cancer. And she said that every day she would read the Psalms and she would write them out, she'd memorize them, and she'd use lament Psalms as opportunities to express some of her pain to God. But she said the Psalms, the scriptures, really helped her through that difficult time. Hebrews... The book of Hebrews tells us this, The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword and it penetrates our souls and our spirits. They are not just words on paper. These are the very words of God to us that speak deep into our hearts and deep into our souls and deep into our spirits. And so if I were to ask you a question this morning, what impact does the Bible have in your life? How would you answer that? What prominence does knowing the word of God have in your spiritual formation? In your daily walk with Christ, what role does the Bible, does the scriptures play for you? I think it's probably a tough question. It's a tough question for me. I looked up a recent research study that was taken on uh, the state of Canadian Bible literacy. 2014, it was a poll taken by Canadian denominations around Canada. So represent Catholics and mainlines and evangelicals. And uh, here's here's the statistics, what they found in this pretty major study that was done a few years ago. One in seven Canadian Christians read their Bible at least once a week. That's 14% of Christians read their Bible once a week. The majority of Christians in Canada read the Bible seldom or never. That would have been the box that they would have checked off. Weekly Bible reading has fallen in half since 1996. So there's a reason we're living in a biblically illiterate culture, even within our churches. Only 23% of Christians strongly agree that the Bible is relevant. This one really surprised me. Only 23% believe that the Bible is even relevant, which means that 77% of Christians don't. They don't see the Word of God as relevant for their lives. 21% of Christians reflect on the meaning of the Bible for their lives at least a few times a week, which means that 79%... Of people, the Bible plays no role at all in how they live out their day-to-day. The one encouraging statistic in here is that among evangelical Christians, almost half of them, 43%, were the serious Bible readers. So that would be where we would fall. The category we'd fall into as an MB church is Mennonites. So I'm glad that we're uh, still people of the word, and I hope that we can continue to be that. So my goal this morning... It's, it's not to guilt anybody. Guilt rarely motivates and it certainly doesn't last. My goal here is to inspire us. To inspire us to be people of the word of God. God has given us this beautiful gift, this treasure. One of the primary ways in which we grow, one of the primary ways in which we hear God. He's given this to us and so I want us to be inspired this morning. We've seen in Psalm 119 how seeking God with a whole heart involves a passion for God's word. You can't read Psalm 119 and miss the fact that God's word is central if you want to be a God follower. We've heard stories of how the Bible's craved among persecuted Christians and how it's helped them through the most difficult times that they go through. We've heard of ways that God is drawing people to himself using the Bible as the only tool to do so and yet they're still drawn to him. And yet uh, we all know how easy it is to neglect the scriptures in our life right life is busy life is complicated and oftentimes the first thing that goes and this certainly happens in my life the first thing that goes is a commitment to my own spiritual walk and that includes reading the scriptures and so what i want to do in the remaining moments is to uh, get really practical with you i want to talk about what it maybe some um, some takeaways That might help us be people of the word and really dive into this and meditate on this. Now, none of this is the magic bullet. We all live different lives. We have different rhythms. And so what works for one person may not work for another person. But for each of us, there has to be something that works for us that's going to help us get into the word. So here's a few things that I jotted down. First of all, setting aside daily time to read. When I was in youth group, we always talked about having a quiet time. That language seems to have disappeared from our vocabulary in our church, but I think there's a lot of value in this idea of having a quiet time, setting aside a chunk of time every day. It doesn't need to be three hours. We're not Martin Luther. I mean, maybe some of us are, but I'm not. But uh, even five, ten minutes, take a chunk of time and just say, this is the time I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pursue God, and then let that grow. But take some time daily to say, I'm doing this, I'm diving in. For some of us, it's morning. Maybe it's lunchtime. For some of you, maybe it's right before bed. Whatever it is that works in your rhythms, but setting aside a chunk of time to say, I'm going to really pursue God. I'm diving into his word with this time that I have. Uh, many people, I say, uh, have a Bible reading plan. Many people will say, it's really difficult because when I get to the Bible, I have no idea what to read. I don't know what I read last week and it's just totally disjointed. So I think there's a lot of value in actually having a reading plan. Some people read through the Bible in a year or read through it in five years, whatever it takes, but they actually have a plan. They know where to go next. Something that's really helped me, the habit I've gotten into, is I've got three bookmarks in my Bible. I've got one in the Old Testament, one in the Psalms, and one in the New Testament. And I try to read a chapter from each when I get the chance to. And that way I pick up where I left off last time. By the time I've made it through the Old Testament, I've read through the New Testament a few times, and I've certainly gone through the Psalms and the Proverbs quite often. So for me, that's something that has worked. Uh, Get help. Use help. There's really good commentaries out there. Commentaries can really help you when you're stuck and you're not sure what you're reading. Devotional readings that are really uh, scriptural-based are good. There's some books out there, basic books called, one of, the, one of my favorites is Reading the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee, and it just talks about um, what is it that you're reading, what is the genre, how to understand it. It just gives you a bit of an overview so that you can dive into it on, on more of a deeper level. Um, once in a while, switch up translations. Maybe, maybe your NIV is getting old or whatever it is that you read and you want to just read it in a, in a different light. So switching up translations has worked for many people. And uh, we live in a world where we have so much media at our disposal. So for those of you, I don't know what people have said, I just don't read, I don't read anything. I don't even know how to read anymore. I say, well, that's fine because we live in a world where there's audio, there's podcasts, there's videos. You know, y- you can read the whole Bible without ever actually reading it. You can listen to it. You've all been given an email a few months ago. Right Now Media is a fantastic resource. It's like the Christian Netflix out there. they got all the Bible studies you'll ever need to get you through the rest of your lifetime. Just watching those and, uh, and getting your Bible uh, knowledge up with that and your devotion towards it. So uh, really getting into some of the media that's out there, that's a good help. And lastly, and I want to say, I think, I think this is probably the most important point, is joining a group, a study group, a small group. Or a conversational partner or somebody that you're reading the Bible with or something that Laura and I have done once in a while. We'll just both pick a book of the Bible and we'll read it and then we'll talk about it together. So you can at least talk about it. You've got conversation partners and accountability partners, uh, small groups, reading through the Bible, whatever it takes. But this idea of community and accountability has so much value and will certainly help and many people will attest to that. Last thing that I want to say, and um, I do this most sermons and I'm not going to apologize for it. I just want to speak to parents. I want to say to parents, one of our primary responsibilities is to pass on faith to our kids, to inspire them to want to know and to love Jesus. The choice is up to them on what they're going to do with that, but at the very least, I want to be able to say, hey, I did my best to point my kids to Jesus. And if I want my kids to have a passion for the Word of God, I better have a passion for the Word of God. If I want my kids to be reading the Bible, they better be able to see me reading the Bible. I'm a good Mennonite. I'm pretty cheap on most things, but when it comes to buying Bibles for my kids, I'll spend all the money I need to. We've got we've got girl Bible, boy Bible, infant Bible, uh, character Bible, adventure Bible. We've got all the Bibles. We go to the Bible store. I'll let the kids pick out what they want because I want them to be interested. I want them to read it. I want them to know the stories. I want them to get to know God through the Scriptures. And so parents, we've got to inhabit this in our homes. I want our kids to see this in us. I'm tired of seeing kids walking away from the faith after they graduate. I want my home to be a place where my kids See a faith alive and active. And if that's going to happen, the Bible's got to play a big role in it. We see that in Psalm 119 for sure. So I've said a lot this morning. And I hope that uh, you're inspired to go and read your Bible and read Psalm 119 and, uh, and get into this. I want to end by reading 2 Timothy 3.16 here. This is Paul's advice to Timothy as a young pastor. And he says this about the scriptures. He says, All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As I, as I reflect on this sermon, I reflect on these thoughts, this is my prayer for us as a church, that we would be thoroughly equipped, that we would be the kind of Christians that are thoroughly equipped to do the kind of work that God wants us to do. Not fence-sitting Christians, not lukewarm Christians, but thoroughly equipped Christians, ready to go out and and... Engage in the mission that God has called us to do. And we see in this verse that knowing the word of God and having the word of God soaked into your life is a big part of what it means to be a thoroughly equipped Christian. So that is my admonition for us, our inspiration uh, as we move forward. So, let's pray and uh, hopefully you get a chance to read through Psalm 119. God, we thank you so much that we can gather here this morning again in freedom when so many others aren't. And we thank you for your word that speaks uh, your words to us. We thank you for the scriptures. Uh, God, I pray that you would just help us not take them for granted. I pray that you would help us dive into them. I pray that you would show us who you are through them, Lord, and inspire us to be the kind of disciples that you want us to be, thoroughly equipped, engaged, and passionate, and doing the works that you've called us to do, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.